Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is lunchtime in San Francisco on the Wednesday, the 3rd of August. And the subject of America, of course, and the current state of America, its political state is never far from anyone's headlines, including this show. We did a show last week with Brookings Institute bigwig, Darren Darrell L. M. West, on how seriously should we take the paranoia amongst American elites, particularly at places like Brookings, about the crisis of American democracy. Uh, West believes that we should take it pretty seriously, um, that we can't blame everything on Dar- not I was going to say Daryl Trump, not Daryl Trump, Donald Trump, and that the roots of the crisis are um, structural, deep-rooted, historic. It was interesting in one of our exchanges, uh, the subject of Richard Nixon came up and um, West suggested that had Nixon been around today, he'd probably be a Democrat, if not on the left of American politics. I'm not sure whether everyone would agree that Nixon should be seen in retrospect as a progressive. Certainly my guest on the show today uh, believes that the roots, if we're to understand America in the 2020s, we have to understand Richard Nixon, and as he wrote in a, in a wonderful piece um, last week in the New York Times, we are living in Richard Nixon's America. Um, my guest is Kevin Boyle. He's the author of a number of interesting books on America, including The Shattering, America in the 1960s. And I think he believes, and I want to put words into his mouth, he believes that to understand the America of the 2020s, we have to understand not just the America in the 1960s, but the America of Richard Nixon. Um, Kevin is joining us from uh, Chicago or just the suburbs of Chicago, uh, where he teaches at Northwestern University. Kevin, have I put words into your mouth? Can we blame everything on Tricky Dicky? I don't think we can blame everything on Richard Nixon, but I do think that what Richard Nixon did is put in place a set of changes, structural arrangements, political forces that we are still very much living with. The way you present it, Kevin, and and I need some historical clarification here. Again, maybe I'm simplifying things. There was some arrangement in America in the 1950s pre-Nixon, that Richard Nixon and his party and his team blew up. Um, If if that's right, perhaps you could explain what it was that they destroyed and undermined. Yeah, I think the really critical thing to understand in what Richard Nixon did as president is that he was responding to these massive upheavals of the 1960s, and particularly to the great surge in civil rights activism in the 1960s. So what happened in the 60s, and now I'm going to simplify things too, is that the civil rights forces, and I'm defining them really broadly, the civil rights forces broke open America's racial system. And that caused enormous consternation, enormous upheaval in American society. 
And what Richard Nixon was trying to do was he was trying to respond to that shattering, to use a word, um, that in a way that would appeal to this kind of broad middle of white America, what he came to call the silent majority. And a lot of the arrangements that I was talking about in the piece that you just mentioned are responses to that. That's kind of the backstory to the piece I was, um, what I was talking about in the Times piece last weekend. So again, this is controversial terrain, Kevin, although maybe not for you, but for certainly many Americans. Are you arguing that really the only prism to look at America is through race. We've done many, many shows on this, and many of my guests have presented the whole history of America in terms of race. Everybody from uh, Carol Anderson to Jamel Bowie, now they're, of course, coming from a certain political constituency. But must we, for better or worse, look at the 1960s in terms of racial upheaval, because there are, of course, lots of other upheaval, sexual upheaval, cultural upheaval, international political upheaval. No, I agree with you completely. I have great admiration for people like Carol Anderson, Um, but race is a central feature of the American past and of the American present. It's not the only feature of the American past or the American present. It is fundamental. There is no way to understand the American experience without talking about race, but it's not the only um, dynamic that is important to the American experience. Gender is a great example, actually, of a really other critically important dynamic that Richard Nixon responded to in the politics that he shaped during his administration. Another uh, anniversary that we've just lived through is of Watergate, the 50th year anniversary of the break-in. I'm sure you're familiar with Garrett Graff's new book on Watergate, A New History, uh, a brilliant book and and, and a a fabulous interview, not because of me, but because of Graff. He presents... Uh, in comparison, in comparing Watergate and Jan Sick, similarly, uh, because he suggests that Nixon and Trump shared paranoia and isolation from the outside world. I don't want to make this a conversation about Trump because I think there's far too much conversation. But is the paranoia and isolation of Nixon, is that, obviously it's reflecting Richard Nixon, but does it also reflect Nixon's America, this paranoia? I mean, surely it existed before. It wasn't as if Richard Nixon invented paranoia. (laughs) No, Richard Nixon did not invent paranoia as much as he had a sense, he had a high sense of it. Um, One of the things that's important to remember about Richard Nixon is that Richard Nixon came into politics. He made his way into politics on the um, anti-communist right what we've come to call McCarthyism, though in fact Richard Nixon's rise predates Joe McCarthy. Um, And that's a politics that rested on the idea of danger to American society from without, of course, from the Soviet Union in particular, but also from within. And that fear mingled in the McCarthy era and Nixon was a classic example of that, with also a really clear sense of class resentment, not downward, but upward, that they were 
there were elites in American society who had betrayed their country and this kind of solid middle class, which is clearly where Richard Nixon came from, they were the virtuous center of American society. And I do think there's echoes of that in Trump, but that's a politics that dates way back, takes a whole variety of forms. Richard Nixon fully embraced it in the early days of his career, and they never really surrendered it, even as president. We did a show uh, with... Um... Rick Perlstein, another prolific mm-hmm. author on the dog whistle politics of the Reagan era. Of course, per- Perlstein wrote Reagan Land, but he also wrote Nixon Land. Um, can the politics of Nixon be summarized by this idea of dog whistling? I don't even really know what it means. I mean, I know what it means. I don't know where the term comes from. Um was Nixon talking a language that wasn't explicit, but everybody understood what he was saying? Yes. That the idea of Nixon, particularly on law and order politics, which I think is really central to understanding Nixon's what Nixon handed to the present, is that you talk about the need for law and order in a way that white Americans could see as, and particularly the white middle class, could see as racial, see in racial terms and had racial consequences, but didn't explicitly embrace race. So Nixon explicitly said in his 1968 campaign where he built law and order as one one of its huge themes, he said, this isn't about racism. People were accusing him of that then. But when he put those law and order politics into place, they had a really clear racial impact. No doubt he would have said something like some of my best friends are black. Yeah, absolutely. He comes pretty close to saying exactly that. Which may in some ways have been true. I mean, is racism the right? I mean, Hitler never said that about the Jews. What? What was and is Nixon's racism? Is it class resentment? Is it paranoia? Or is it just hardcore genetic racism? It's a combination of things. In public, he actually um, very rarely expressed, in fact, I'd be really hard-pressed to think of a public declaration of racism in the way that, say, some politicians on the far right now fully embrace that. In private, he would say things uh, that were explicitly racist about Black inherent inferiority. Um, And it's one of the, you can hear it again and again on the Nixon tapes. Um, His racism was in policy terms and in the ways in which, this is really tricky stuff, it's the ways in which he linked racism into appeals like law and order politics by at the same time explicitly saying this wasn't racism. It's one of the really key things that came out of the 1960s. You know, you can go back into the 1920s, the 1930s, and white politicians and ordinary white people would say the most explicitly horrific racist things, and that would be socially acceptable in white circles. What happened in the 1960s in particular is that that sort of overt racism became unacceptable. You just didn't say stuff like you would say in the 1920s and the 1930s. And so what happens, the racial messaging kind of went underground. 
And that's where the dog whistle politics came from, that you couldn't be explicitly racist in your politics to appeal to white voters with explicit racism in the 1960s because white people don't want to think of themselves as racist. So instead, you find ways to frame racial politics in a way that demonizes Black people, particularly on law and order issues, without making it sound racial. Another historian we've had recently on the show, Julian Zalizer, um, he had relatively new book out about Newt Gingrich burning down the house. Each of these books talk about some new moment, whether it's Gingrich or Reagan. But for you, I, I assume that Reagan and Gingrich in particular come out of the, the Reagan playbook, uh, out of the Nixon playbook, that there's yes. nothing particularly original about Gingrich. No, that's exactly right. That Nixon sets the pattern for Republican politics going forward. Now, there are changes. I mean, obviously, things um, don't stay exactly the same as Richard Nixon set them in 1968 or in 1972. So, for instance, Reagan is much more of kind of a free market than Richard Nixon was. But the politics, and particularly the politics of race, the politics of abortion, the politics of the Supreme Court, those are all set in place by Nixon and then carried forward through Reagan and certainly Gingrich. Um, one of the reviews of your book, and your book has been acclaimed, it's been on all sorts of best of lists, says by Jennifer Sly, says, think you know the 60s? The shattering asks you to think again from a progressive point of view, but could one say the same from a conservative point of view? Could one argue that the shattering could have been written an equivalent parallel mirrored book could have been written about the left in the 60s? In terms of the left shattering the... Well, it, partly that, but also partly the fact that nothing has changed, that the debate has stayed the same. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I know you're familiar with the work of Kurt Anderson. Um, he's another prolific writer, wrote a book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, another book about Reagan and Nixon and Trump, blah, blah. But he, uh, he was on my show back in 2011. He had a fascinating essay uh, on the fact that nothing has changed over the last 50 years except technology. So politics, the way we look, the kind of music we listen to. And it seems as if everything has been frozen in time since the 60s, both amongst conservatives and perhaps amongst progressives. Is that fair or am I oversimplifying? I think it's a bit of an overstatement to say nothing has changed. One of the remarkable things that has changed in the United States that immediately comes to mind is who's in the United States. In 1970, the United States was never more homogenous racially or ethnically than it was in 1970. 85% of Americans in 1970 were white, and most majority of the remaining 15% were African-American. That's not true with the United States anymore. That's a fundamental transformation. One of the things I mentioned in the shattering that is something of a theme in the shattering is the opening up of, of just the beginning, opening up of LGBTQ politics. Just started in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Now look at the transformations that's brought. But having said that, I do agree that there are really key issues that became 
really central to the United States in the 1960s that became huge points of contestation that are still with us. And race is clearly one of them. Abortion politics and the question of the government regulation of sexuality is clearly one of them. America's place in the world is clearly one of them. Do we Prison, argue punishment, yeah. inequality, law and order? Is yeah. absolutely all, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's huge continuity. That's why the 60s remains important. It's not just that, you know, there's a bunch of baby boomers, which I happen to be at the tail end of, out there who want to read about the life they lived through. It's because this is a period that really sets an agenda that we're still living with, not exactly the same way, but that we still, those issues we still live with and are still arguing over. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a surreal situation. I think particularly for the the groups of Americans who are growing, who find themselves in the midst of something that seems so foreign. We've done a number of shows on the state, the political, cultural state of Hispanic America. Yeah. And I think for Hispanics, there's something particularly surreal about getting caught in this time warp. Yeah, I think the, that I think the Latino their communities, there is a community that has undergone all sorts of extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, not that we want to generalize and obviously in every, all Latinos think or act alike or look no. the same. I mean, we don't avoid that. But certainly there's a, there's a weird element to this that America is frozen, locked. It's haunted. I did a show um, earlier today with a, a spy writer, Dan Fesperman. He has a new book out, Winter Work, about Berlin. And he talks about Berlin as a haunted city haunted by its history. The same could be true of America. Yeah, I think that's a one. That's a beautiful point, actually. I wish I had thought of it myself. I might just steal that. Yeah, you should, because I stole it from <laughs> Festiman. <laughs> we, we'll all put our footnotes together. You know, yeah, America is haunted by its past in many ways. Maybe that's true of all societies, but I think yeah. some societies particularly, that's the case. Yeah. And I do well, think certainly, uh, you're a historian, so that's your trade. The politics are complicated. Yeah. We did a, a show last year with David Paul Kuhn, who talked about the moment when the white working class turned against liberalism. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen his book, The Hard Hat Riot, Nixon, New York City, and the dawn of the white working class revolution. Do you agree with Kuhn that this was the moment when Nixon somehow convinced uh, New York, white New York firemen to riot against the liberals in New York. Was it in 1969, I think? Yeah, it's 1970. It's at exactly the same time. It's in response to the Kent State shooting. Um, uh, I have a few reservations. One is that the hard hat riots, as dramatic as they were, was a slice of the white working class. And I think one of the things we have a tendency to do, people... Um, like me in the academy, people who, were, who write about politics, is we tend to generalize about the working class in the same way that you and I were just talking about not wanting to generalize about Latinos. The white working class is a very big and broad, and especially was in those days, very big and broad group of people. And I think there's a tendency, and I think Trumpism has kind of accelerated that, to slot white working people all into the same category. And I just think it's too simple. Now, did Nixon think he was appealing to a certain segment of the working class? Oh, yeah. But it was a segment of the working class. That hard hat riot was driven largely by construction workers. 
Now, maybe that's not a big deal. Maybe that sounds like a small point. What that means is they were skilled workers. And that's a slice. That's the upper end of the white working class. There's a big difference between being a skilled worker and being a factory worker in Detroit you know, on the assembly line. And those distinctions we tend to um, brush over way too quickly because we're looking for generalizations. And it's easy for people of my class um, to kind of dismiss- What's your class, Kevin? I'm a college professor. That puts me solidly in the middle class, if not the upper middle class, right? It's really easy for us to dismiss working class people um, way too quickly. When one thinks of Nixon, of course, one thinks in, in terms of the systemic change, one thinks of him responding, reacting, rejecting Eisenhower. Eisenhower, of course, in 1961 was the guy who came up with the idea of the military industrial complex. And he was certainly for a Republican quite, uh, quite critical of it. Did Nixon, in your mind, Kevin, did he come up with a different kind of complex, a building uh, of a complex, a sort of a, a, a criminal industrial complex or something like that? You you write about that in, in, in yeah. your wonderful uh, piece in The Times uh, last week. Yeah, that's a question. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, that what Nixon started to do with the law and order politics that he then put into policy when he in his first term is he started to construct what you just beautifully said was a prison industrial complex the amount of government federal government spending on both um, policing and in prison construction went up astronomically during the nixon administration and once that politics got lodged into american public life and proved so successful I mean, Richard Nixon won re-election in one of the great landslides of American history in 1972. Then both parties embraced it. It became lodged in American politics as something you don't dare challenge and, in fact, support. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger. But Nixon put it into place. And what about the connection, Kevin, with all this and the, the rise of neoliberalism and this embrace of the market? Because, after all, you could think of the criminal industrial complex is simply the privatization of prisons, for example. Some people might present it in those terms. And the privatization of everything, the destruction of public space, the destruction of the idea of the public. Yeah. Is this, because Nixon, Nixon wasn't a hardcore neoliberal, was he? No. I mean, Goldwater no. was, and Nixon rejected that. Right. No, that's a really important distinction. We were talking a little while ago about the that not everything was set in place in the 1960s. I mentioned in the piece that you just cited, you just mentioned, um, one of Nixon's key appointees to the Supreme Court, really two of them were kind of, over the years would lay the foundation, the legal foundation for some of that neoliberal term. But Nixon himself wasn't a neoliberal. Richard Nixon, if you had asked him, probably would have, well, he would have thought of himself as a moderate conservative. So he didn't, and that's a moderate conservative of the 1960s. Um, to the right, say, of someone like Nelson Rockefeller, but certainly to the left of Barry Goldwater, the neoliberal turn really kicks in shortly after Nixon leaves office with the 
great economic crisis that hits particularly industrial America in the latter half of the 1960s, that's where the neoliberal turn kind of gets built onto the foundation that Nixon laid. So that's one of the really key changes of the period after Nixon. Not like Nixon doesn't help build the groundwork for it, particularly by, he appoints William Rehnquist to the Supreme Court, and Rehnquist then becomes an anchor of that new conservatism. But it's not full-blown yet. That neoliberal turn really comes a few years later. One of them, and, and, and your article is excellent, one of the, the more interesting pieces of it was um, your call to liberals to rethink this. You, you identify what happened, and then you say, uh, in terms of liberals responding to Nixon's ghost, if you like, maybe like mm -hmm. Macbeth, he needs to be slain, or Banquo's ghost. Uh, liberals must take up violent crime as a defining issue, something they've been reluctant to do, and then relentlessly rework it and try to break the power of its racial dynamic by telling the public an all too obvious truth. The United States is harassed by violent crime because it's awashing guns, because it has no effective approach to treating mental illness and the epidemic of drug addiction, because it accepts an appalling degree of inequality and allows entire sections of the country to tumble into despair. Now, I agree with you, but some strategists might say you're playing into the Republican playbook. You are choosing to fight the battle yeah. on the cultural space, which you're bound to lose. How, how would you respond to that? Don't think you're bound to lose. I think the mistake that progressives too often make at this point, well, I th let me rephrase this. I think that the liberals, the Democrats and the liberals, who aren't always exactly the same, have made two fundamental mistakes in dealing with the question of law and order. One mistake is the mistake that people like Joe Biden made when they were in the Senate, which is to say, oh no, we're definitely law and order people too, and we're going to be as tough on crime as the conservatives. Yeah, are. so it's the Clinton mistake, essentially. Yes, exactly. That's one side. The other side is to say there isn't to ignore the problem. The truth is that millions of Americans, not just white Americans, mil millions of Americans, many people of color, worry very much about the safety of their communities. They have a right. They have good reason to worry about the safety of their communities. People who face the problem of gang violence in the streets, which happens in parts of Chicago constantly. People like the folks up at the 4th of July um, shooting at the 4th of July parade, just what was that about a month and a half ago, which is about 20 minute drive from my house. They have reason to fear the problem of law and order. So ignoring it's not going to get you anywhere. But neither is saying, oh, no, the Republicans are right. They've got the right idea. We believe in that, too. What we have, what progressives have to do is they have to be willing to admit there is an issue here. It's of concern to people, but it's not the issue. It's not going to be solved the way that we have dealt with it over the last 40 years. If, we, if it had worked the way we dealt with it over the last 40 years with greater imprisonment, with mandatory sentences, then we wouldn't have the problem today. We have to acknowledge that there are these structural roots to the problem of law and order in the United States, and that's how you're going to try to solve them. So I think actually engaging it with an alternative vision 
gives progressives an opportunity to rework the issue rather than to simply say, oh yeah, we're tough to. That's not gonna get you anywhere. And it's not gonna get you anywhere to say, nah, it's not really a problem. Let's face it, but let's try to say to people, progressives need to say to people, but there's a way to get at this, the roots of this problem that we're not doing right now. So I, I take your point. You can't go back to Clinton. You can't go back to a sister soldier moment, the third way, which failed with Clinton, failed with Blair, seems to have failed all over the world, even with Macron. But I, I don't see a politician able to articulate what you're saying in a coherent way, which escapes racialized politics, escapes the assumptions and um, and cliches that many Americans make about what politicians say and who they are. How, how does this happen, Kevin? I mean, I you, you have to understand, I think, that Clinton and Blair were the consequence of 20 years of neoliberal victories. Mm -hmm. So this thing is building up, but it requires something different. We can't go back in time. I mean, you're a historian. You understand that as well as anyone. Yeah. Yeah, this is, as I think I said, as I did say in the piece, I'm talking about a long game here. This is a politics, this law and order politics of the Nixon form that's been embedded in American life for half a century. And so undoing half a century of politics is not going to happen overnight. And I agree with you that I would have a hard time identifying a politician right now, a progressive politician right now, who is doing the sort of thing that I'm calling for. But I do think that down on the grassroots, down among ordinary people, not just progressive activists, but people in the center too, there's a good understanding of this situation. Look at the support there is in the United States in polling for gun control. And maybe it's really basic. I mean, geez, to say that we ought to we ought to um, prohibit assault weapons is hardly the most dramatic form of gun control, but that sentiment is there at least. The foundation of the sentiment is there. The guns are out of control in the United States and something needs to be done about them. And that's a popular position, actually. I think there's a fundamental understanding among millions of people about the failures of our, and this ties with your neoliberal point, the failures of our ability to deal with widespread questions of addiction and mental illness. That's a structural problem. And what I'm suggesting is that what a politician could do, what the progressives could do, is tap into that sentiment that's already there. I don't think that's a tough sell. I don't think it's hard to sell to the American people and not just talking to your fellow progressives. It's talking about those middle people. It's people in the political middle to say to them, look, you know this. That's why I put in the phrase, the all too obvious truth. You already know this. Now what we need to do is talk about how to build a politics, a set of policies around that. Now, that's not going to be easy. I'm not naive enough to think that if you just get the right messaging, everything is going to change in three weeks or two months or three years. This is a long-term project. There is a guy who I think could probably make this argument. It's certainly not um, Bernie Sanders, who is the reverse of this. The problem with him is he's already been president a couple of terms. I mean, it, 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 yes. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be shocking for Barack Obama. I mean, basically, right. he wouldn't disagree with anything you're saying. Yep. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that 
the Barack Obama. And you're from Chicago, so you you know him better than I do. <laughs> the Barack Obama of 2008, that's the closest that we have come in the period that, God, probably in my adulthood, um, adulthood's getting longer and longer, that closest we've come to the sort of politics that I am calling for here. I think that you're absolutely right. Problem is he can't What about Michelle Obama? I mean, the the point of all this is, given the nature of American politics, um, it's going to require someone who can somehow exist above normal political circumstances. Yeah, or someone who can cross lines. I think that's another... So somebody perhaps from the Hispanic community, perhaps a woman, or just someone different, someone who doesn't fall into all the old traps of escaping the past, of killing the ghosts. Exactly. I think to cite someone who is neither uh, a person of color or a woman, I think one interesting... I don't think he seems to be interested in the presidential case is Ohio's Senator Sherrod Brown. It was someone who crosses over class lines in really fascinating ways, who can speak to a progressive politics without kind of um, getting trapped in the kind of class politics that now has become so important. Um, But I agree with you that someone who can transcend the old divisions, someone who can move us beyond what you and I were talking about a little while ago, the traps of the past and to forge something new. And maybe we can learn something even from your old friend Richard Nixon in his astonishing decision at the time to go to go to China. Is it possible, yeah. Kevin, it might seem slightly absurd, but is it possible that the kind of president that you're calling for or the kind of political movement that you're calling for will come from within the Republican Party? There was a time where I could easily agree with that. At the moment, I don't see how the Republican Party has room for someone who would be willing to go in the directions that I am suggesting. But once upon a time, yeah, absolutely. And what about a third party? Let's just say that the next election is between Biden and Trump, which seems increasingly unlikely, but who knows? Yeah. It seems to me, at least, that there would be an inevitable, credible third party challenge. Is it possible that a third party might manage to incorporate this thinking that you're calling for? It's possible. I think the tradition in the United States and the political structures of the United States tend to mitigate against the ability of a third party to do much more than play a spoiler role, um, which it certainly has in the past. The problem in the United States is that to become, to win the presidency, you've got to win 50% plus one of the electoral vote. And so what that tends to do is it tends to push the political structure into two-party system. Um, So I would like to imagine that a new political structure, many, let me rephrase that. I would like to imagine that a new political structure could force the current one to break through these kind of um, structures that they are trapped in. I do think that that has actually happened to a striking degree with the Republican Party. It's just not a positive turn. And of course, as a historian, you know nothing's inevitable. It's quite possible that this situation will last another decade or two. Uh, 
Kevin, congratulations on the book, The Shattering and all your excellent thinking. I think it's really important you don't fall into the traditional categories. Um, what else should people be reading in addition to your new book, The Shattering? Well, I um, re recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the great pleasure, I suppose, of um, going into COVID isolation. And I spent a bit of that time reading the novel Hamnet. I don't know mm. if you have Maggie read it. Years. Exactly. Um, which I just found extraordinarily moving. Um, maybe reading that in the middle of an epidemic wasn't the best choice to make, but I just was incredibly moved by it. And if your readers or your listeners, who I suspect were there, have found the book long before I did, um, but if they haven't yet, I think that would be a, it's an extraordinarily powerful read. Excellent.